Welcome to the Insurance Marketing Organization Podcast, where financial services marketing expert Seth Green interviews IMO experts, executives, and top producers to share can't-miss tips on how they successfully manage their IMOs, grow their businesses, create great relationships, and influence the industry. And now, here's your host, Seth Green. Welcome to the podcast. This is your host, Seth Green. Today, I've got the good fortune to be interviewing Herb Morgan from Cancer Fitzgerald, a innovative global financial services firm you've probably already heard of. Uh, Herb, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Seth. It's uh, good to be with you. Likewise. Let's go back in time a little bit. You've had quite an interesting career. How did you get started? I was an econ major. A lot of people in this industry were. I went off to graduate school, was working on a PhD, a doctorate in economics, and I ran out of money to finish my doctorate in economics. So this was back in the 80s. So the thing to do was go get a job for a couple of years, landed my first investment management job with a firm called Dean Witter, and never went back and finished my doctorate. And here I am, you know, 34 years later, working away at it. Well... Um, congratulations. I'm sure the longer version of that could be in a book. Oh, yeah. So, so <laughs> let's talk a little bit about your work in the industry. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So I'm the, uh, I run a business for Cantor Fitzgerald called Efficient Market Advisors. We are a, uh, we're a money management firm. We don't really deal with the public. We go through financial advisors and they introduce their clients to us and we manage money for them. I founded the firm back in 2004, uh, grew it to the size it is now. Then I was acquired by the good folks at Cantor Fitzgerald in 2017, where I now am an employee running this business for them. Well, congratulations on that. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen since that happened? Well, you mean industry changes? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the industry changes. When I started in the business, people, it was right after the crash of 87. And it was also when we were going through this deregulation and, you know, stock commissions were fixed, let alone before Charles Schwab came up with this idea of you can call an 800 number and trade at a discount. It was they were fixed. It was usually 10 cents a share. It was regulated. There was the shift now to lower commissions and there was competition. People wanted to do it themselves. And then sort of moving into the 90s, we shifted more to this idea of pay a fee so that the financial advisor and you were kind of on the same page in terms of uh, incentives. Rather than the old days, the, the guy was incentivized to turn your account over as much as possible. Not to say that he or she did that, but they were incentivized that way. Since then, the last 25 years, the industry has evolved. Pricing just continues to decline, which goes to the benefit of the client. That's great. I think every time it happens, the industry is worried that, you know, we're going to go out of business, but yet somehow we just keep making more and more record profits. We make it up in scale, in volume. The capital markets are so much deeper today. So many more people are investors today. Uh, even kids, young people who never would have had an investment account before, but they can now do one with you know fifty or a hundred dollars on the Robinhood app. I think that's all great, by the way, because it's education, and sometimes they're going to learn 
you're going to learn about investing when you lose money. So better lose fifty dollars than yeah. than wait till you're forty and you have money and you really start losing it, right? Absolutely. So talk a little bit about how your business has evolved. Yeah. So our business has uh, has really not changed, quite frankly. Uh, when I launched it in two thousand and four, it was because of the advent of a new investment vehicle called the ETF, exchange traded fund. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to be first and early in actually generating a track record, a verifiable GIPS compliant, GIPS verified track record, GIPS is Global Investment Performance Standards. And I saw that opportunity in 04 launched. We haven't changed our model names. We haven't changed our strategy. Uh, We've certainly gotten bigger. The ETF availability has widened and the costs have compressed. So for example, when we started, there were very few ETFs in the bond space. Today, there are hundreds. The average expense ratio of an ETF was half a percent back then, which was revolutionary and cheap. Today, the ones that we own are averaging around an eighth of a percent. We used to have to pay back in 04, $15, $20 for every trade we made on the client's behalf. Today, we pay nothing for those trades. People used to get paper statements from us. You know, 90% got paper statements. Today, it's probably 5%. We didn't have an app or an online portal back then. We've got all that now. So it's interesting. That stuff has evolved, but sort of the way markets behave really hasn't changed, I think, throughout history. All right. So how much money is flowing through in terms of like AUM is flowing through your department now? So we're running right now, we're running about a billion three in ETF assets. And obviously the firm, Cantor, even more, we have other money management entities under the umbrella. And what are some of the biggest, I mean, you're kind of industry famous for attempting to predict the future. So what are kind of the trends you see? Where do you think the puck is going over the next, let's say, five years? Yeah, so it's interesting times because we just got out of a recession and it was the only supply side recession in history. So when we have a recession, it means you have a lack of aggregate demand. But because of the coronavirus pandemic, there was not a lack of demand. There was just a cutoff of supply. We said restaurant close. We said ball bar close, factory close. So as we've come out of this recession, that's part A. The second part is We've never just given everybody money before, right? So we would have, back in the 30s, we would have a work program, right? Able-bodied men, get out there and you're going to build the Hoover Dam, you know, or you're going to go to the Red Rocks in Denver and you're going to build this whole concert outdoor thing. John Maynard Keynes, who was the father of sort of modern economics, said, dig a hole, fill it back up, pay the guy to do that. Today, we've just literally just given everybody money. We don't know if that's good or bad yet. If you got a check, you say, well, that's good. And then you got to spend it. So the businesses say, well, that's good. But we don't know the implications to our status in the world, our currency value in the world yet. I think that over the next five years, to be more specific, we are going to experience very significant economic growth that we probably didn't even think was possible in the world's largest economy because ultra low rates, very easy monetary policy, the most educated workforce in the world, 
relatively low tax on capital and corporate profits compared to say where we were five, six years ago. If those things remain in place, I think that uh, we'll continue to do well and the economy will grow. That's incredible. So, I mean, you think despite the record printing of money and the inability, let's say, to necessarily pay it back and the shakeout from the pandemic and whatever comes next, you think there's still a lot of room to run? I do. And my big concern is the record printing of the money. And to understand why, I think people, there's still a lot of people think, oh, we should always have a balanced budget, you know, and and I think we should get closer to a balanced budget. But we have this unique luxury as a country, the United States does. We won World War II. And because we won World War II, we ended up with most of the gold in the world. And we ended up with our currency being the reserve currency. And this To sort of understand our debt and deficit today, you actually have to go back to World War II. We didn't want to be in. We just wanted to sell everybody the stuff they needed. We didn't know who would win. So we we took payment in gold. So we ended up accumulating gold, gold, gold in the United States. That was great. Then we had to enter the war. Then we won the war. And so prior to the end of the war, we had this big meeting in New Hampshire, a place called Bretton Woods. And the Secretary of Treasury, Morgan Thau, was his name. And they got together with representatives from all the other countries and all the other allied nations and said, we need a monetary system. Well, really, nobody could tell. Nobody had a choice in the matter except us. We dictated. And the system was all the world's business gets done in dollars. Every currency in the world is going to be fixed to the U.S. dollar in terms of the exchange rate. And the U.S. dollar will be fixed to the price of gold. So if you have dollars, you can redeem them for gold. And they agreed on the system. So we got to keep all the gold. <laughs> it, was, it was really smart. And then it would just evolve that now all international commerce is essentially done in dollars. Because of that, the U.S., oh, fast forward, Vietnam War, we needed far more dollars than we ever had gold in order to fight the war. So President Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard, and then currencies began to free float against each other. But the stage was already set for the dollar to be the currency. So today, we run a trade deficit with pretty much everybody. So when somebody gets our dollars, because we bought more stuff from them than they bought from us, the net balance is they have our dollars, we have their stuff. What do they do with those dollars? They have to do something with it. Well, the safest investment in the world is the US Treasury. So they buy treasury debt, which allows us to run a budget deficit. The trade deficit allows us to run a budget deficit. But we've in the past, we reserved running big budget deficits for time of recession or time of war. And our deficits have grown so big and our accumulated debt has grown so big that many are saying, hey, maybe this is really risky. What do we do if we actually have a big recession in five years? Or what do we do if we get into a massive war? We're running deficits today like we're in a war and a recession and we're in neither one. So that's, I think if we can get that under control, we're awesome. And I don't know, and this is a great debate for all economists, what is the tipping point? What is that fulcrum where we just said we took too much debt, we became Greece or Japan? Neither one of them were the world's reserve currency. Neither one of them have our abundant natural resources, the greatest educational systems in the world, greatest capital formation, entrepreneurs, new companies getting minted daily. But we, do, we are taking that one big risk on that spending side. That makes a lot of sense. How are you advising clients now? How are you telling them to prepare for some of that? 
you know, it's tough to prepare. So I think the worst case that comes out of that is a greater level of inflation, right? Because if you're just, if you're borrowing too much and printing too much, your currency eventually becomes worth less. The, pro- the issue is currencies are related to each other. There's no other currency in the world that could replace the dollar. I mean, the Chinese would like it to be the renminbi. Nobody trusts communists. Communists don't trust themselves. And the communists, even the people that live and work in China, want nothing more than to get their capital, their wealth out of China. So that can't be it. The Russians are dirty. They're communists. They can't do it. The euro was supposed to be the one that could be this close substitute, Western stylish democracies. Major structural economic problems there, very low growth environment, a very low incentive to work, you know, they get the long vacation, you know, all of that. Then you say, okay, the Swiss franc, that's the one. It's not big enough. That's like if San Diego issued a currency, right? It's just Switzerland. It's this, it's a little tiny thing. Then you say, well, what if it was uh, gold? Mm, not enough. Then we've got this new crypto thing, right? And this is a major economic paradigm shift that I don't think anybody even knew about five years ago. Very few people. And even today, it's still very few people. We can talk about all that if you want. But if you do get that inflation, investors should position themselves in debt, <laughs> right? Because inflation transfers money from lenders to borrowers, right? If you bought a house and you only put down 10%, there's inflation, house goes up, your debt stays the same. Your salary goes up, your payment for your house stays the same. So be in debt, only in an amount that you can afford to safely service, of course. Uh, The other way is to own assets that would tend to go higher with inflation. That's going to be stocks stocks and real estate, potentially some metals like silver or gold, and potentially some of the cryptos. Talk a little bit about, um, I know your time is incredibly valuable. Talk a little bit about the cryptos and the volatility of that marketplace and all their desires to be real alternatives to, let's say, the US dollar. And what, if anything, if that your predictions, any of that actually going to come to pass? You know, I'm of an age where most people, we kind of get to this age where we don't want to learn new things or read new things and we just dismiss it out of hand. And I realized a long time ago that that was a huge mistake, right? I was at a dinner back in New York a couple of weeks ago, and there were heads of other investment management firms who were around this table, and somebody at the table brought up crypto. And the two guys that are my age and older scoffed and laughed it off. And so, ah, you know, and it, it was clear they didn't know what it was. And crypto, let's use Bitcoin as the example. Bitcoin wants to be a currency, and it is, right? The problem with it for the United States of America is as follows. A big, big part of our foreign policy is the fact that we are the world's reserve currency. We don't have to go blow up Iran to impose our will on Iran. We want them to stop building nuclear things. We can cut off their ability to sell oil in the world market because it has to go through US currencies, right? We can put sanctions on North Korea and Cuba and the other really bad people in the world, that helps to keep us safe. Our foreign policy is dependent on the dollar being the reserve currency. Bitcoin is a threat to our ability to implement foreign policy if Iran can sell oil to China and they can do it all via Bitcoin, right? So the US government, they don't want to stop you or I from going to 
Sizzler Steakhouse and paying for our dinner with Bitcoin. They have no interest in that. But they do have to figure out a way to prevent terrorists, drug smugglers, human traffickers, and people that would seek to blow up our buildings and other facilities. So the Federal Reserve is putting out a white paper, a research paper on risks, pros, cons. It's due out any day, actually. Now, the Fed doesn't get to make the policy. They're just doing the research. And then they will open it up for public comment. So all kinds of institutions and individuals can comment. They'll go back. And then ultimately, Congress, you know, with Treasury and Fed, will make some sort of policy around Bitcoin and cryptos for use in the U.S. What I think will definitely not happen, the heavy-handed authoritarian approach that China is trying to take, to just say you can't do it and shut it down, that doesn't, you can't tell Americans what to do. That's not how we roll. You will have pitchforks and torches on the Capitol steps again <laughs> if, if you do that. Um, El Salvador just made Bitcoin a official currency. I mean, excuse me, legal tender, meaning if you're doing business in El Salvador, you must accept Bitcoin as legal tender. So I think blockchain has a massive future. I think crypto is the facilitation of the blockchain. I think that the volatility will be here for some time. I think there will be many people that lose large amounts of money and many people that make large amounts of money speculating in those. Just the way before we got the Federal Reserve in 1913, individual banks issued their own currencies. They were called banknotes, right? So we've had this before. Now, my great-grandfather who came to this country from Italy lost all his money in one of those banks. He picked what he thought was the best bank and he went broke, right? So what you think is the best crypto, maybe you'll go broke. So it is fun. I personally speculate a little bit. We don't do it for our clients because it's not a security. We can't give advice on it, but it is a lot of fun. Your passion is obvious. What do you like best about what you do? I love looking at my monitors, man. I got four of them going across here. I used to have eight and it just got to be too much. So <laughs> doing the research, looking at the charts and graphs, when you make a decision and you move it, you know, for managing 1.3 billion, you know, you're often making a decision that's $200 million or $100 million. There's a bit of a rush to that, right? You know, like I don't even like to gamble $10 in blackjack. I like it. But then I realize I'm moving a hundred million. It's kind of funny when you think of it that way, but I love that part of it. And I also like the financial advisors that we work for. I mean, those are my bosses. So I noticed on your podcast, you've had some financial advisors. Those are the people I work for. They trust, they do the front end relationship, the financial planning. And then for the money management, they usually trust the money managers like me to handle their clients' assets. All right. Well, this has been Seth Green with Herb Morgan of Cantor Fitzgerald. Herb, thank you so much for joining us. We know your time's incredibly valuable. Hey, thanks for having me. And can I mention my podcast? Oh, yeah, of course. Please promo away. <laughs> so uh, I have a podcast. It's called Slaying Bulls and Bears. Great title. All right. Tagline is making the complex and complicated, simple and sensical. It's available everywhere. Download, thumbs up, stars it, tweet it, you name it. We appreciate it. All right. Seth Green, Herb Morgan, go check out Slaying Bulls and Bears. Thanks, everybody, for watching or listening. We'll talk to you or see you next time.